0: Good morning! morning. Today is December 26, 2021. It is the last time this year we have the joy and privilege to gather together as a church, as a congregation of the children of God, to praise and worship our God, to fellowship and commune with one another, and most importantly, to hear the teaching and preaching of His Word. Psalm 119, verse 49. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort and my affliction, that your promise gives me life. Let us, therefore, for the one last time in 2021, open our Bibles as a congregation, as a church, and hear attentively from the life-giving and a hope imparting Word of God. So with that said, let me pray for us, and we'll dive into the text. Let's pray. Lord our God, our Heavenly Father, in this room, Lord, Sit many saints who have walked with you for much longer than I have. In this room sit saints who have endured much greater afflictions and suffering than I have. Lord, I am insufficient for the task you have put before me, but Lord, my sufficiency is in you, is in Christ, is in the sufficiency of your word. So I simply pray, Lord, that you will be. Honored this day through the preaching of your word. Help your people in the receiving and the hearing of your word. And I pray that Christ Jesus will be set forth in all of our minds and our hearts. I pray that you will help, the, and help your servant in his weakness, in his folly, in his sinfulness. I pray that your word will go forth with the power of your spirit to change lives. The lives of your saints and the lives of those who are apart from Christ, we pray. Amen. The last sermon of the year usually has a flavor of looking back and reviewing the year we lived together as a church through the lens of the scriptures. So when I sat down and began preparing for this sermon, I started by thinking, what is a theme that stands out the most for our church members individually and our church congregationally this past eventful year? What is the one thing that we have experienced, not just once or twice, but consistently throughout the year? But There are many things that brought us great joy and gratitude to the Lord this year. We added new members to our congregation, Christy, David, Ruth, Maggie, Gary, and Sam. And some of you are going to be members very soon next year. And God sustained us and fed us through the summer while Matthew was on sabbatical. And we added more ministries in our church men's group on Saturday mornings, and women's Bible sitting on Sunday mornings. I've heard so many, uh, so many of you encouraged and built up by the scriptures, by the word of God, and through one another. Uh, even among the temporal things that we, we enjoy in this life, we have much, much to, to be thankful for. Uh, some of you, some of you are expecting your first, or second, or fifth child. and uh, Andy, Andy and Jen welcome their first baby, who is not my best friend. She cries every time I, I'm close to her. I am Baning and Joel got engaged. Many of you found new jobs where you may shine even brighter as Christ ambassadors, a light to this world. Some of you graduated from your undergraduate and graduate programs, and you're becoming independent and inching closer to be the man or woman God designed you to be. Some of you retired. Congratulations, Pastor Mike, and now you're even more eager to serve the Lord in greater capacity. Henry's son, John, after months of prayers, received his kidney transplant, and he is doing well. Brothers and sisters, I love this church, and I love this church more than anything I have. Your joy is my joy, and I could not be more thankful for all the blessings God has richly and generously lavished upon you. But... I think the one thing that stands out to me more than all the blessings and the joys that we get to receive and enjoy this year is the losses many of you have experienced and we as a church have gone through. Some of you, some of you have been sick or injured, some of you have lost your jobs, some of you have lost relationships, but all of the losses cannot compare to our loss of loved ones to death. Some of you lost your child in the womb, the little one we never got to see and hold. Some of you lost your father to old age, the man who raised you and cared for you. Some of you lost your husband, the darling you loved and cared for for years. Some of you lost your sister, the sibling you treasured and you grew up with. Some of you lost your best friend, the buddy you loved more than even yourself and we as a church we lost Lydia, the woman of God whom we looked up to, respected, and loved. I've seen you weep for your own losses. I've seen you weep for the loss of another in this congregation and I have wept for you even while I was preparing for this sermon. So I would try not to weep my way through the next forty five minutes. There are very few things every human being experiences. Not all of us not all of us are rich. Not all of us are healthy. All of us are famous, but all of us, rich or poor, young or old, well-known or ordinary, if we live long enough, we will be grieved by losses. Losses that cut so deep and so unbearable. Few of us need to learn how to rejoice. That comes by nature. Many of us desperately need to learn how to grieve. I need to desperately learn how to grieve. I would venture to say this is the greatest question of every pastoral ministry, How do you cope with losses? How can we solve the problem of pain? What is the light that shines at the end of of the tunnel? What is the light that shines in the darkest hour of our lives? What does the word of God say about our suffering and our grief? If you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to the 39th Psalm. The 39th Psalm will be in verses 1 through 13, the entire psalm which you can find on page 467 of the Pew Bible, Psalm 39. You'll be needing the Bible, Psalm 39, which you can find on page 467 of the Pew Bible, Psalm 39, verses 1 through 13, Psalm 39, 1 to 13. Let me read the text for you, and please pay close attention to every verse because this is the word of God. To the choirmaster, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O oh Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing but for you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions, and do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace and my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart, and I am no more. The psalm we just read comes from a category of psalms commonly known as psalms of lament, These psalms are ones uh, where the psalmist expresses intense and unbearable sorrow, grief, and suffering to God and asks him to intervene or calls upon him for, for help. Psalm 39 is a psalm of lament, and that's why I picked this psalm for us this morning. Because God gave this psalm to us for the specific purpose of teaching us how to lament. So let's begin with the title of this psalm. So look at the small words just underneath the ESV title, the small words underneath the ESV title. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. This title has three parts, and each part tells us something important about the psalm. So first part, the psalm was written to the choir master. Question, who is the psalm uh, who is the choir master? Well, we have a choir master at our church, and her name is Juliet. So before COVID happened, the choir of our church would come together and practice and have cantatas for Christmas and Easter. But the choir in this psalm is actually very different from the choirs in our modern churches. If you read First Chronicles, you will find out that the choir is a group of musicians who are appointed to play music during temple worship service. So in other words, his choir master is more like Andy than Juliet. His job is to lead the choir or the praise team so that the choir will lead the people of God to worship and praise God. Just what just happened right here. So and that's to say, the psalm we just read, the psalm is so much about suffering, distress, and hostility of God's hand. This psalm is actually sung by all Israel when they presented themselves together before God. Now, can you imagine walking into a church and the praises they sing are all songs like Psalm 39, like depression, fire burning in the heart, mankind like a mere breath. You probably walk out from that church and you never go back. So why did Israel sing this depressing psalm during public worship? Well, I think the answer is pretty straightforward because grief and suffering are something we can all relate to. We sing about it to stir up our empathy for one another, to teach us how to cry out to the Lord in the pit of hopelessness, to point us to not a man of power or might, but a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief as our helper and our savior. There is a place and a need for us to read and sing psalms as depressing as Psalm 39. A second part, secondly, the psalm was written to the choirmaster. The psalm was also written more specifically to Jeduthon, the choirmaster. Who is Jeduthon? Who is this guy? He is a Levitical musician who also served as David's seer and had the ability to prophesy with instruments. So he's not only a praise leader, he's not only someone like Andy, he's also a prophet. And his job as a prophet is to speak the truth, guard the truth. And make God's truth known to God's people. And that's the job of a prophet and a seer. So that's to say, we can read Psalm 39. We can meditate upon this Psalm as the pure truth, pure and comforting truth, as our unfailing and infallible guide in the time of need. And part three, uh, lastly, the Psalm was written to the choir master Jeduthon by David. It is a Psalm of David. He needs no introduction. David, he was the mightiest king of Israel, but at the same time, he was also the most tried man in Israel. He lost a newborn child because of his own sin. Several of his children were killed or went insane. Uh, he lost his best friend, Jonathan, who was killed in war. Uh, one of his wives was a perpetual thorn to his side. So when we read this psalm, we're, actually, we're really coming to an expert on dealing with suffering a man seasoned with grief. David has much to offer us today on how we could best deal with our losses in a God-honoring way. And there are three things I want to draw your attention to from the text. First, the silence of the mourner. The psalmist began his mourning process with silence. Why? Should we be silent in our grief? And secondly, the speech of the mourner. The psalmist broke his silence after a little while, what did he say? What should we say in the midst of our suffering? And lastly, the savior of the mourner. The psalm is more as one who has no hope. What is his hope? What is our hope in the depth of our sorrow and woe? So three simple points for you this morning. First, the silence, and then the, the speech, and then finally the savior of the mourner. So let's begin with point number one, the silence of the mourner. Verse 2. Look at verse 2. I was mute and silent. I held my peace. And again, verse 9. I am mute, and I do not open my mouth. So the psalmist began his mourning process with, with silence and muteness. And that is how many of us usually begin our mourning process. It's only natural to be silent At the initial stage of grief and sorrow, the very language we speak and use to describe our distress and agony testifies just how natural it is to be mute in the face of losses. We use words like dumbstruck or dumbfounded, literally we are struck dumb or speechless, or we are at a loss for words, or we are stupefied as if a spirit of stupor fell upon us. And the scriptures actually describe this phenomenon very well. listen to Psalm 77, verse 4. 77, another psalm of lament. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Lamentation 220. The entire book is about lamentation. Jerusalem just got sacked by the Babylonian army. And her young men exiled to the ends of the earth. How did Israel grieve? Lamentation 220. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. And you remember Job, how he sat on the ground for seven days and seven nights without uttering a single word. After losing all his children, all his possessions, and his health. So you get my point. Silence silence is a natural response to heart-wrenching losses. Sometimes you just don't know what to say in that moment when you receive the shocking news of your loss and in the days and months to follow. But the psalmist was silent for actually some different reasons. There are reasons why silence could be a wise and godly response in a time of affliction and suffering. Verse 1. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. So the psalmist held his peace because he did not want to sin against God with his words. And isn't that a great temptation for us to sinfully murmur against God under the crushing weight of grief and anguish? We complain. We complain that God has treated us so unfairly or or too harshly. We complain that God has afflicted us for no reasons. Maybe God's love has turned into cruelty and his kindness into hostility. When we're bitterly tried and our hearts embittered, we're more prone to say bitter words to ourselves, to others, and even to the Lord. And you remember the people of Israel in the wilderness, Numbers 11 verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And you remember Naomi, after losing her husband and two sons, she said, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt, with, dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And you remember Job, in the very depth of his anguish, Job said to God, you have turned cruel against me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up in the wind, on the wind. You made me ride on it, high and lofty. And then you toss me about in the roar of the storm. This is really the sum of human complaints against God. God, you have given us great things. You have done well for us. But why have you treated us so cruelly by taking them away from us? And the psalmist here is admonishing us in verse 1. Whatever calamity has come upon us, however great our losses, we must take great care to watch over our lips, lest we sin against the Lord in our speech. And I will tell you how to avoid the fatal danger of sinful complaints momentarily, just in a bit. Hold that thought. But verse 1 continues, continues with a further reason why we should be watchful over our lips. Look at verse 1 again. Look at verse 1. Second reason why it's a godly thing to be silent. Look at verse 1. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. We are often surrounded by unbelievers, or those whose default mode is hatred and opposition toward the Lord. They will take advantage of every opportunity to speak ill, to think ill, and to act ill toward God. When we sinfully complain, of God, we never know how that word will be used by sinners to dishonor and smear God. Or maybe our unbelieving children here are agitated, grumbling, and they're emboldened to think lowly of God. Or maybe our unbelieving co-workers over here are are aggravated, murmurings, and begin to entertain ill thoughts and mockery of God. Maybe maybe the friends we often evangelize to. Uh, witness our flustered complaints and think maybe this Christian faith is not worth it, it's not strong enough, it's not worth it. Brothers and sisters, we are ambassadors and representatives of Christ in this world, as much in our sufferings as in our ease. May our light not be dimmed and obstructed by the slip of our tongues or the idle words of our lips. So, how do we cope with grief? And answer number one with prudent, holy, and gracious silence for the purpose of avoiding every possible sin and honoring the Lord our God in our silence. But silence alone was not sufficient. Wouldn't it be nice if we can all just keep our mouths shut in a phase of life's trouble and sorrow, and then it would just all go away? But sadly, things don't work that way. Complete silence did not even help David the psalmist. What happened to him when he kept his mouth shut? What happened to him when he held his peace? Verse 2. Look at verse 2. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. The silence treatment That did not work. Godly silence is good, but godly silence is only half the cure. Pure silence only deepened his grief and worsened his distress. Silence is not the complete antidote to our suffering. Holding our peace usually cannot heal the heart of bitter distress. David, he wrote somewhere else in Psalm 32, verse 3, another psalm of lament. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Psalm 38, verse 13. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Silence. And what's the result of the silence? For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. So what then should we do beyond our silence? That's not the complete cure. What What else can we do? Spurgeon, Spurgeon wrote in his commentary on Psalm 39, he wrote this, Inward grief was made to work and ferment by want of vent. Utterance is the natural outlet for the heart's anguish and silence. Therefore, a silence, therefore, both an aggravation of the evil and a barrier against its cure. Uh, similarly, a Puritan John Flavel wrote, It is much more becoming a Christian Ingeniously to open his troubles, then suddenly to smother, th- smother them. There is no sin in complaining to God, but much wickedness in complaining of him. Grieves are eased by groans and heart pressures relieved by utterance. This was David's course and constant way, who was a man of affliction. Flavo is right. Verse 3, David's constant, co- uh, constant way. David's constant course. Verse 3. My heart became hot within me as I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. So earlier I said, I'll tell you how to avoid sinful complaints against God in the time of trouble. Here is a remedy. Speak. Vent. Complain. Rightly and biblically. The more grief we suppress in our silence, the more prone we are to sinfully speak. In other words, to keep our mouth from sinful utterance, the remedy must be to fill our mouth with words of truth and prayer. You know Ecclesiastes 3.7, there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. In facing grief, we need to know when to, when to use silence and when to use speech. And what we need to know when we do speak, we need to know what to speak and how to speak in our anguish and distress, Which leads us to point number two, the speech of the mourner. What better way to learn how to speak than turning to David, a man of affliction, also a man of prayer. The silence of the psalmist was verses 1 through 3, but the speech or the prayer of the psalmist fills the rest of the psalm. Verses 4 through 13, describe to us words we may speak in the time of of mourning, words of balm to relieve our pain, and words of ointment to heal and comfort every ailing soul. But before considering what we may speak in our sorrow and suffering, let's figure out to whom we speak. Well, the answer is pretty clear from the psalm. Verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Verse 7, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. The psalmist spoke, and the psalmist spoke to God. That's not to say when we are struck with grief and affliction or we're unafflicted with anguish, we cannot reach out to a trusted brother or sister. Not at all. I found hearing the words of wisdom and counsel of comfort from a brother often brings the most immediate effect of calming the spirit of turmoil and lifting our hearts of downcast. One of my favorite quotes I read this year is from Spurgeon's sermon, where he said, Friendship is one of the sweetest joys of life. Many might, ha- many might have failed beneath the bitterness of their trial, had they not found a friend. So the gift of friendship and brotherhood in Christ, they're invaluable to the mournful soul. You cannot grieve alone. However, venting to a brother in Christ is but a supplement. Calling upon the Lord is the main course. Right? No amount of fellowship with brothers can replace or substitute a sweet hour of prayer, especially in the midst of sorrow and distress, Puritan William Bridge, he wrote in his very helpful book, A Lifting Up for the Downcast, regarding prayer. Listen, about a prayerful man. A praying man can never be very miserable. A praying man can never be very miserable. As speech is common unto all men, so is prayer unto all Christians. God has none of his children born dumb. As soon as one of your children is born, it cries. So with every man that is born of God. It may be he cannot pray as he would, nor hear as he would, nor perform any duty as he would. Yet it may be said of him, Behold, he prayeth. Turn him where you will, and behold, he prayeth. Sick, yet behold, he prayeth. Tempted, yet behold, he prayeth. At home or abroad, yet behold, he prayeth. And can he be miserable while he prayeth? Surely no. Why then should he be discouraged, whatever his condition be? And that is what I want to focus on from Psalm 39 this morning. He prays, a praying man can never be very miserable. What is it that we could speak in a time of our mourning and grief? What are some of the comforting and invigorating truths we can speak to the Lord and to ourselves? Let me point out a few things from this psalm. Speech number one. Acknowledgement of our lowliness before God. Speech number one: an acknowledgement of our lowliness before God. Verse four. Look at verse four. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and that my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they're in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth, man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And this is what losses and crosses do to us. It makes us more aware of our lowliness before God. That we're not as lasting as we thought we are. We're not as strong as we thought we are. We're not as sovereign as we thought we are. Our lives are fleeting, weak, and uncertain. I am happy new year. Our lives are very short. Verse four, let me know how fleeting I am. Verse five, you have made my days a few hand breaths. My life is as nothing before you. We stand as a mere breath. And verse six, a man goes about as a shadow. Every year on my birthday and on December 31st, I will wake up and read Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70, or, by, or even by reason of strength, 80. So for me, probably 70. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. This is just to remind myself, well, I will not last forever. Right? I am not designed to stay here forever. There will be an end to this earthly life. And that day is actually drawing nearer and nearer. We're one day closer to that day than yesterday. And nothing makes this reality more real. And nothing confronts us with this truth more forcefully than the losses and the deaths we sustain in our lives. Our lives are very short. Our lives are also very weak. Verse six. Look at verse six. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. So you see what David is saying here? It does not take much to plunge us into unspeakable distress and affliction. We like to think the latest thing we deal with is the biggest thing in our life. In high school, not getting into Harvard is the biggest disappointment in life. In college, not getting into Harvard, graduate school (laughs) is the end of the world. In graduate school, not getting paper published is the most devastating thing I've experienced. And when we really grow up, right, we lose our loved ones, our children are disobedient, our relationships go awry, and just when we think things couldn't get worse, our own health breaks down, and our own end draws near. Right? It does not take much to plunge us into anguish, right? sickness of the body, ill treatment of others, flesh-exhausting labor, disappointment in relationships, death of a loved one. There's much in life that could throw us into utter despair. I remember Anthony, Anthony Langone, once he said this to me, it's a hard thing to be a human. Well, that's true because because we're weak and our weakness is especially manifested in our losses and pain. Surely for nothing, they are in turmoil. And finally, our lives are uncertain Our lives are short, fleeting. Our lives are weak and feeble. Our lives are uncertain. Verse 6. Just a small glimpse of how uncertain our lives are. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Our plans are always subject to change. We do not even know what the next hour will bring. On March 15th, 2021, I got to my office early to work because I had to leave early to have lunch with Lydia, and I wanted to get a few hours work done before that. So at 10.05 a.m., she messaged me to confirm that I was still available for lunch, to which I replied, yes, I am still available. And then at 11.30, just when I was ready to leave for lunch, she called me, and then she told me, that her doctor had contacted her, and there was something they wanted to, get, to take a better look at and then be prepared to stay overnight. And needless to say, we never got to have that lunch together. And as I mourn for the loss of a grandmother figure in my life, that's how young I am, she's a grandmother figure in my life, I cannot help but acknowledge the uncertainty of our lives. An hour before, we're ready to have lunch, an hour later and then we never had that lunch. Our losses are never timely. We never plan out the hour of pain and anguish. We don't write in our planners, this hour I prepare to suffer. It strikes us out of nowhere. It shows us we're not the sovereign kings of our own lives. And that's the first thing we can speak to the Lord in our grief and weeping. Losses and crosses make us aware of the fleetingness the weakness, and the uncertainty of our lives. It brings us face to face with our creatureliness, which leads us to the second thing we can speak of in our suffering. Speech number two. We can acknowledge our lowliness before God, and we can also acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Speech number two, acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. Our sufferings show us how little we are, And then, on the contrary, how great God is. And God is sovereign over all our afflictions. He is the author of our blessings and trials. He is the giver of our joy and our grief. And the psalmist is fully aware of this. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. Why? For it is you who have done it. Verse 10. The stroke... He's talking about is God's stroke. And the hostility, or really in Hebrew, the word actually means contention or, or opposition, not something with ill intent, but just contention or strife or opposition. This contention is the contention of God's hand. Verse 11, when you discipline a man, you consume like a, like a moth. God has ordained everything in our lives. Both the hour beautified with joy and the days gloomed with sorrow. God is as much the composer of our blessings and delight as the orchestrator of our losses and sorrow. When we think nothing is working out the way it's supposed to, exactly zero things have gone wrong according to God's sovereign will. Now, how does God's sovereignty help us face grief and loss? And comfort our aching soul. How does this big thing, bigness of God, help us in our suffering? Well, it tells us that there's a reason and there's a purpose behind every trial and suffering. It was not meaningless. It was not without purpose. And meaning and purpose, they are very comforting and reassuring things, in of themselves. Right, so whenever I sit in my office scratching my head about my research, disheartened about its slow progress, I remind myself that my work is not meaningless. It has a purpose. It is to solve a real life problem that may benefit a lot of people in this city and beyond. In the same way, we will quickly lose heart and begin to despair if we think our mourning, our suffering for losses, is meaningless and vain. But it's not. Because God is sovereign and his sovereignty tells us everything happens for a reason. God's sovereignty is the firm ground for our belief that everything happens to us for a reason, for a purpose. And it's even more comforting because this reason behind our present suffering has a divine purpose. And because it's a divine purpose, it's a good purpose. A purpose for our ultimate good and well-being. You know the hymn, God moves in a mysterious way. Right? We sing this hymn sometimes at church. Probably only William Cooper, you may not know this about him, he's a man who struggled with lifelong depression, who tried to commit suicide at least four times throughout his life. Probably only he, he can, can write these words. Deep in unfathomable minds of unfailing skill, he fashions up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sins, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. I do not know why Lydia was taken away from us after being with us for just a short amount of time. I don't know why some of our loved ones are lost forever. They have perished in their sins. I do not know why our innocent children are snatched from us in the womb. But this I know, this I will do for you. I'll mourn and weep for your losses. And I will weep with you and tell you, God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. And this is why we speak so highly and so much of God's absolute sovereignty. Not only because I wholeheartedly believe that it is true, but I also believe wholeheartedly that it is the most comforting doctrine you will ever hear. And that's speech number two, an acknowledgement of the absolute sovereignty of God. And speech number three, a plea for relief and deliverance. A plea for relief and deliverance. We pray and plead that God will deliver us from our sins, and our transgressions. Verse 8. Verse 8. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. And again, verse 11. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Let me be very clear about this. Not all afflictions are due to sin. And in fact, when I look back, on the sorrows you experience this year, most of them are not directly related to any specific sin at all. Right? But the point of the psalmist should be well taken still. Right? Sometimes God does send trials to expose sins in us, where suffering may embitter our souls, but it sweetens our hearts by urging us to pursue righteousness. Afflictions often act as God's alarm clock to awaken us, to the hidden error and grievous ways within us. I see as Lewis, he famously said, "Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows something is wrong when he is being hurt. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So trials are not just not pure evil. Just like bitter medicine is not pure evil. It is health and cure coming in the form of awful taste. So trials are God's fatherly love and care coming to us in the form of prevention, correction, or cultivation. They are good for the health of our souls. It is our privilege as sons of God. So when our sufferings are self-inflicted, and again, not not all sufferings are self-inflicted, but when it is, like Israel in the wilderness or Jonah in the stormy sea or Peter after Christ's death, it is much more becoming for us to repent and plead for forgiveness than to ask for immediate relief. Deliverance from sin must come before deliverance from pain. Deliverance from sin will lead to deliverance. From pain, but we do pray for relief from our anguish and relief, and especially when we were afflicted, were tried for no sins of our own. Right? I used to think, I used to think it is a sign of spiritual weakness and immaturity to ask for relief. Right? And a mature man of God would just uh, simply take a few punches life throws at him, and he goes on as usual. Uh, there is a story. There's a story of a of a general in ancient China who was shot by a poisonous arrow in the arm. And then the wound began, began to fester and then his arm became paralyzed so he, he can't move. And then a famous physician offered to perform a surgery that required him to cut open the flesh all the way to the general's bone and then use a small knife to scrape off the poison which had infected the bone. I'm not recommending that, but that's just the story. Uh, the physician offered to put a blanket over the general's head, so, for what purpose? so so that he could scream as much as he wants, right? So that he he could uh, you know he don't he doesn't have to see it, see the the, the arm getting cut open, right? And then the general just uh, scoffed at this notion. Right? Ancient China, no anesthesia, so this has to be the way to go. The general said, "No, this is stupid, right?" this That's for cowards. So the general just played go chess with his friend and then did not make even a sound while the physician operated on him. Uh, That's how I used to think how a man of God deals with grief. Life goes on as it is while God scrapes off the poisons in the heart. Only weaklings ask for help, and strong men need no relief. That, brothers and sisters, is at best unhelpful and at worst unbiblical because the choicest saints in the Bible ask for relief from grief and pain and suffering. David, pray for relief. Verse 10, verse 10, Remove your stroke from me. I'm spent by the hostility of your hand. Verse 13, Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and I'm no more. Just a stronger version, a crazier version of asking for relief. Right? David asked for relief. Jesus Pray for relief in the garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Paul prayed for relief in 2 Corinthians 12. A thorn was given me in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. It is no cowardice to pray for relief. It is not a sure sign of strength to ask for no deliverance. Right, so pray. Plead with God to bring timely comfort, removal of anguish, and fullness of joy. But here's the caveat. Here's the caveat. Should God tarry in answering this prayer for relief, let us not murmur against him, nor lose heart, but rather let's, us, let's, let's, press, let's press on in prayer, because we know God's promise. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. God's timing might not be our timing. God's purpose is greater than our purpose. His purpose may be better than immediate relief, and he might be after something even more important than instant instant comfort. So let's remember, God does no wrong to us. God does no wrong to us by afflicting us, however bitter our circumstances may be. And God does no wrong to us by not immediately answering our cry for relief, however great our pain is. And while he tarries and delays, he will provide everything needed to sustain you, to renew you, and to guide you. And that is our prayer. We acknowledge our weakness, our lowliness before God. We praise, we trust, and we cling to his absolute sovereignty, and we, we cry out for help and relief. So when trouble comes, turn to Psalm 39 or to any other psalm of lament and just pray through it. And let your soul be soaked and drenched in the sweet dews of God's heavenly word. And if you read other psalms of lament, and this is just really the formula for dealing with suffering and losses, pray, wait, and trust. Pray, wait, and trust. I wish I could tell you there, there is a deep Mysterious, a spiritual cure for suffering and losses. I, I myself have wished that such a shortcut exists, but the scriptural prescription is simply fall on your knees to pray, sit quietly to wait, and orient your heart to trust. Pray, wait, and trust. Which leads us to point number three, the savior of the mourner. The savior of the mourner. Who do we trust? So we just read earlier in Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Uh, Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God. Whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And lastly, verse 7. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of our text. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. It has been said that this psalm is one of the two psalms along with Psalm 88. That's one of the two psalms where where the psalmist delves deep into his suffering and pain, but he never recovers from it. He just says, as he just says it at the end, look away from me that I may smile again. But I think this is a very, very hopeful psalm. All of our hope is in verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And I want to conclude by just pointing out a few things for all of us to remember in this verse. Verse 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. First of all, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ today, you are never without hope in the midst of suffering and grief. No matter how strongly you feel otherwise, you are always, you are never without hope in the midst of suffering. When despair seems to overcome you, when you cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel, when you have convinced yourself that grief will never depart from you, remember that you are never without hope in Christ. Even if it may seem very distant from you, it is ever within your reach. Romans 5.3, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, And character produces hope. And isn't that just a portrait of our Christian life? The light light of hope may grow very dim, but it will never be put off. You will be knocked down, but you will never be knocked out. You will stand up and you will carry on by God's grace. So remember this. If you are in Christ Jesus today, you are never without hope. What then is this hope? Verse 7 says it pretty plainly. My hope is in you. Our hope in our suffering and anguish is the Lord our God. God, not the prospect of, a, of, of better circumstances, nor the wish of better luck next time. God is the only hope of every mournful soul. The most helpful book I read this year is The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. In the preface of the book, he explained that his purpose for this book was to solve the intellectual problem raised by suffering and pain, and that was it. So it's not a book to counsel you through your grief. But then he dropped this gem. For the far higher task of teaching fortitude and patience, I was never fool enough to suppose myself qualified, nor have I anything to offer my readers except my conviction that when pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than much knowledge, a little human sympathy more than much courage, and the least tincture of the love of God more than all. I want to convince you that God loves you in your anguish and suffering as much as in your joy and ease, on the worst of days as much as on the best of days. And there is no better way for me to convince you of your hope in the steadfast love of God than Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All of our hope in the midst of suffering is grounded firmly in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know and you remember at one point you were apart from Christ dead in sin, enslaved by the passions of the flesh, and firmly bound by the evil of your heart. The scriptures put it the best. It describes how all human beings are apart from Christ. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. At that time, you and I, we were truly without hope. We were running a hellbound race, and at the finish line, there would have been eternal death, And condemnation true suffering that will really go on forever but God who is rich in mercy he loved us by sending forth his only son Jesus Christ into this world he was a man of sorrow acquainted with grief for our sake he suffered he suffered on the cross to pay the death penalty for our sins he endured the just wrath of God in the stead of ruined sinners for our sins so that we may no longer suffer for our own transgressions. All the sufferings now, they're not for penal purposes. Now this is for our sanctification. So we no longer have to suffer for our own sins. The cross stands as an emblem and a proof of God's steadfast love and care for our souls. And no amount of suffering and agony will ever annul it. And if you have repented, if you have turned away from your sins, if you have trusted in the finished work of Christ on that cross, he is your hope, he is your joy, and your life in every trial and every affliction. But look at verse 7 again. Verse 7, last thing. Verse 7. The psalmist's hope is not just in the past. It is also very much in the future. Verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait, my hope is in you. The psalmist is waiting, is waiting for something that is coming in in the future. Our hope in God and in Christ Jesus requires waiting. In our suffering, we're waiting for something greater, something brighter in the future. We're waiting for Revelation 21 verse 4, that glorious day. He will wipe away Every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is true because Christ not only died on the cross for sin for us, but he also rose again, so that we who trust in him will also be raised with him to everlasting life. In Christ Jesus that day is guaranteed for you. And that is one of the greatest good suffering does for us, that we should be all the more eager and desirous to look to heaven and hope in God. I'll close with the words of John Newton as Samuel Rutherford. Newton wrote in one of his letters, Methinks, if we might go to heaven without suffering, we should be unwilling to desire it. Thus the Lord, by pain, sickness, disappointments by breaking our cisterns and withering our gourds weakens our attachment to this world and makes the thought of quitting it more familiar and more desirable. Rutherford wrote in one of his letters, I envy not, I fret not his waking love, who saw that this water, this trial, was to be passed through, and that now the number of crosses lying your way to glory are fewer by one. Than when I saw you. Brothers and sisters, we suffer in this life so that we may be better prepared to welcome the next life in which there is no suffering. Remember this, even if you have no idea why God's hand is so heavy upon you, why it all seems so cruel, so bleak, so meaningless. There is light at the end of the tunnel, and it is the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, whom we get to behold forever. Now we have passed this year. There's one fewer year on our way to glory. There's one fewer suffering for us on our way to glory. I'm looking forward to 2022, but more than next year, let's all eagerly await await that which is beyond our earthly pilgrimage, that glory which awaits us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks and praises for all the things that you have done in our lives, for ease and blessing as much as suffering and trials. You are good. You only do good to your servants. I pray that you would teach us how to cry out to you in the midst of our grief and sorrow, to acknowledge our fleetingness, our weakness, and and the uncertainty of our lives before you, to praise you for your great sovereignty, for your power and your might, to be able to afflict and to be able to deliver and to comfort. And we praise you, Lord, because you are a God who brings much timely comfort for our good and your glory. I pray that you will stir up in the hearts of every saint in this congregation to look forward to that great glory which you've prepared for all of us in Christ Jesus. We cannot wait uh, to receive that glory, to stand before you, to walk in your presence, to dwell in your house all the days of our lives for eternity. So give us that eagerness, give us that hope as we wait for you, for the appearance of our Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.